So this podcast is going out on September 15th. This is crazy that we're halfway through the month of September. Um, if you're a family man like myself, your kids are back to school. I'm also a teacher, so I'm back to work. And I can't believe we're two weeks and one day until the opening of uh, deer season. Um, I do know a lot of people don't hunt opening, you know, the early opener in October. Uh, talking to my friend John, you know, he doesn't spend much time hunting those that really early season. But I like to get out whenever I can. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. So hopefully you're getting ready. Remember, please be safe out in the woods. Wear your harness. If you guys are setting tree stands, uh, make sure you are tethered when you go up into the tree. And uh, just be careful. Uh, the podcast you're about to listen to uh, was with Richelle Ford. And she's a falconer. It was awesome talking with her. Uh, she's been doing this for over 20 years so you'll, you'll hear her talk about it. The passion that she has is tremendous. Uh, I will put her contact information in the description. Uh, so if you want her to do a uh, birds of prey uh, class seminar presentation, I've seen it several times. And um, she stopped over at a, a friend's party after one of her presentations so she had the birds in in her car brought them in and gave another impromptu show and it's amazing the owls are beautiful um, so again her contact information will be in the description please like us subscribe all right and uh, enjoy the show welcome to the 518 woods and water podcast where each week we will have interesting conversations about all things woods and water Welcome back to 518 Woods and Water. Today, I've been excited about this podcast. I'm here with Richelle Ford, and she is a falconer. Good afternoon, Richelle. Hello. So, um, Richelle, you've been in falconry for a number of years. Tell us about falconry in New York State. So, I've been a falconer for about 20 years now. And New York State has a fairly strong population of falconers. We have over 300 in the state right now. Um, and we're a strong state for that, and we really promote the sport, trying to bring in new people and young people also because we try to keep um, the young people involved. And you can start at the age of 14 becoming a falconer. All right, so take us through what is a falconer? A falconer is a person who hunts with birds of prey. Um, birds of prey that we use here in New York State that work the best are red-tailed hawks, um, goshawks, cooper's hawks, sharpshins, and kestrels. Now, in order to become a falconer, uh, is there an education requirement? There's a lot to becoming a falconer. And New York State makes it um, not difficult, but they want your commitment to it because it's not just a hobby, it's a way of life. When you hunt with a gun, you hunt 
during the season, you clean your gun, you put it in the gun safe, and you're done. When you hunt with a bird of prey, you work with it all season, just like you would hunting with a gun, but then you just don't put it away. You need to maintain it throughout the year. So if you want to go on vacation, you want to do something where you're not going to be home for a few days, you can't just have anybody feed your birds. You need to get somebody who's licensed to do that. So it's not a hobby. It's a way of life. And once you commit to it, you find that it's really enjoyable and it's a good thing. So I was reading through the New York State Manual for Becoming a Falconer. Um, I realized really quickly that I don't have the time to do that. So take us through the time requirement uh, for your birds. So in the beginning, your time is involved in getting prepared. So you need to have what's called a muse. It's a chamber which the bird lives in. The bird also needs a weathering. They need certain type of equipment. And most of the time, as an apprentice, you make your own equipment. You need to learn to make the trap. You need to learn the equipment that they wear, um, your glove, uh, the giant hood, which is the, the container that you travel with them. So you need to make all that. So that takes a part of the time. Um, then once you trap a bird and get the bird it's probably a good hour hour and a half a day until you have the bird ready to start hunting and then once you get them hunting week by week if you hunt um it's probably 40 minutes a day plus the time you put to hunting which can be anywhere from a couple hours to i mean there are days we go for about five or six hours depending on where we are and what we're doing so it's it's a time commitment it really is um so the apprentice somebody brand new to the sport has to link up with somebody who is not an apprentice. What levels of licensing is there within the falconry community? So there's three levels. There's an apprentice, a general falconer, and a master falconer. So as an apprentice, the first thing you really have to do is to look into it. Is this something that I want to commit to? Because the first thing you need to do is pass the test that the New York State gives you. And not to say the test is hard or easy, but you need to prepare for it because a lot of the information you'll, you will not know as a new person getting into falconry. Um, but the state is very good at preparing you. They give you the questions, they have study manuals, and so it's very doable, but you have to make the commitment. And they want you to pass that first to see that you are going to commit to doing it. Then you need to find a sponsor. A sponsor is a falconer that's either a general or master falconer, and they're willing to commit two years of their life to you to teach you how to be a falconer. So it takes you two years as an apprentice working under a master or general falconer to then get your license where you can then hunt by yourself as a general falconer. So as an apprentice, I can, I can, once I pass the test, I get that um, either a master a or sponsor. a gen- sponsor. Yep. Uh, I, can, I can then get a bird. You first, before you a- can do that, you have to get your equipment all inspected oh, okay. by the state. So the state steps in and says, yes, this meets the criteria for a bird to live here for you to maintain a bird. And then they give you permission to trap a bird. And that's the beginning of it. And trapping season starts the 1st of September. The other thing you need to do, most people already have this because people who are falconers tend to be hunters, is you have to go and pass a small game license also. So you have to take the test for a small game license and go buy a license before you become a falconer because we follow the rules of gun hunting, when, where, and how you can hunt. So the times of days, the dates that you can hunt, the species that we're hunting, and the same things that you need to do with gun hunting, getting permission from landowners and places like that before you hunt on them and following those rules too. So, we we so we, we pass the inspection from the state. We our our uh, muse is good. Our weathering pen is all set up, and now we're ready to to get that bird. So how does apprentice 
So basically you build a trap. It's called the Belchatry and Belchatry is a French word and it means a box within a box. And so you build this box out of hardware mesh and you put fishing line on top tied to slip knots. We use gerbils because they're probably the best prey as far as motion and movement. Uh, hawks hunt with their vision and so they need to see the motion in order to go down the trap so you build this trap and now you need to spend time and usually we recommend spending the time through the summer seeing where you're seeing juvenile red tails because you need to go where the birds are and follow the birds and um, we trap along highway not highways back roads where telephone poles are we hunt um, Tra uh, train tracks, areas like that, places where you'll see birds along fields, and you spend a lot of time trying to find the birds, and just because you see a bird doesn't mean it's not what they call a haggard or, or an adult red tail, because they don't have a red tail their first year, they have a brown tail with black stripes. That's how we can identify the juveniles from the adults. We're not allowed to trap an adult because eight out of 10 of these birds don't survive their first year, and if they have a red tail, they're breeding age, and we cannot take them. Okay, so you're looking for the juvenile red tail. So you, you deploy the trap with the gerbil in it. Yeah. And Actually, we like to use two. You two. know, the same premise, if you put one child in the room, there's not much going on, but you put two kids together and they can cause trouble. Oh. We want the gerbils <laughs> to bounce around and fool around so that they're moving, so that's why the birds see them. If there's one gerbil, they tend to hunker down and not move. So, so then that, that hawk sees that, comes into the trap, the trap. Yeah. And they basically get attached by their toes. So they're trying to reach in to grab it. And when they do, they put their foot on the trap. And when they pull back, the slip knots grab their toes. So the gerbils survived. They never hurt. We had one pair for six years. They were family pets and they <laughs> went on field trips. And then um, the bird is not injured because it's not like a net snapping on them or trapping them. It's basically by their feet. So you need to be in visual contact to the trap at all times. And usually if the bird's going to come down, they usually come down fairly quickly mm -hmm. within a few minutes of seeing it because they're inquisitive and they're hungry. So when they get caught by their feet, basically I just go right up. And if they're only caught by one foot, if you grab the foot that's not caught, you control it. You can pick the second one up. You just release them a little bit and the slip knot opens and you just pick them up. Now you have your bird and you got to do something with them. So we always <laughs> joke about this. We put them in a box basically a big cardboard box and you just tape it up and take it home with you and that way when you get home you're in an environment where it's safe and the bird's not going to escape from you mm -hmm. um the first time i trapped my bird i taped that box up i think i used like half a roll of duct tape because <laughs> i got home my husband goes did you really think it was going to get away because it was so taped up it took us <laughs> scissors to get it out but that's that first time your heart rate's going so fast yeah now you want to be able to handle the bird so if you got a new puppy or a kitten, you'd put a collar on their neck. But birds of prey, their necks are so delicate that you could never put something around their neck. But their legs are beefy and hardy. So we put what's called anklets around their ankles. And then the infamous jesses go on that. And then you hook a swivel, which allows the feet to move independently so they don't get twisted up by the jesses. And you put a leash on them. Well, if we trap a red tail, usually within 15 to 20 minutes of getting their jesses and anklets on, we can get them to sit on our fists and just sit on your hand really? that quickly because they're so young in their life that they don't know any better and that just it's comfortable for them to sit there. And so it's, it's amazing how quickly we can, they can adapt. And that process is called manning? That's manning is when you're working manning. with your bird so they can, you can handle them safely mm -hmm. and, and they respond to you for food. So you, you're, you're, rewarding their behavior with food no it's Positive. more like you're making them hungry okay. and they're hungry and they want the food so okay. they don't see it as a reward they see it as a need 
Okay. I'm hungry. I want to eat. They have the food. They don't, not like a dog where if you, they know they're going to get a treat, they'll do a trick. Mm-hmm. No, it's, no, it's kind of the opposite. I'm hungry. You have the food. I'll do what you say. Right. So, so then take us through that training now. When, when we, we get that, you got that hawk. So now that red tail will come onto your hand. It'll sit there and perch. And now how are we going to start the training process? So when we just the bird up and got them ready, we weigh them. So we have a baseline to know where you're starting from. Also, you can feel their keel, which is their breastbone, and you can feel how hung, how well nourished they are by that because it doesn't take very long for birds to get thin or, or lean because they can't be overweight. You can't fly if you're overweight. So they're usually lean. So if you feel them and they're what we call sharp, you can feel that bone sticking out, they're going to respond a lot faster than a bird that had just eaten a meal before you caught them. So depending on how their weight is and how sharp they are is how quickly you can expect them to respond. I've had multiple birds where you get them sitting on your fish and if you hold a piece of um, meat out to them, they'll actually take it right out of your hand fairly quickly. We we correspond with hunting season so and sometimes we get a deer and deer meat is good because it's very lean you don't want to give them things off the hoof usually so beef is not as good as chicken chicken is is a better um, type of meat for them to process but you need little tiny tidbits that are like quarter inch squares of meat to use because you don't want to give them something huge you want them to to work at getting the the treat so we'll use chicken or or some deer meat and we try to get the bird to eat just from our fingers. And mm-hmm. if they'll do that, you put the food between their feet. So they have to bend over to pick it up. Then they're exposing their neck to you, which is their vulnerable spot. So that's showing signs that they trust you to do that. Mm-hmm. Once you can get them to do that, you put them on a perch and you step back enough so that maybe your glove's like six to eight inches. So they can't quite step on your glove. They kind of have to give a little hop to get there. Mm-hmm. And you put the tidbit on the glove and you get them to hop. And then you keep moving farther and farther away, increasing the length of the leash they're on so that you can get them to come to you for like five or ten feet and we usually do this in like a spare room or in the basement where there's uh, nothing they get hurt on and then once they can do that we take them outside and now you've created a whole new environment for them because mm-hmm. the distractions become bigger and more out there and if you can get them to start that process over again so short jumps longer jumps and then going on what they call creance which is a french word for a fine line yeah. that you use so that you can't lose them when we can get them flying across like the football field distance as fast as you put your glove up, then they're ready to take everything off and you can hunt them. They have to respond to you quickly and efficiently in order to hunt them. If they're sluggish or not responding, don't try flying them free or they won't come back. They won't come back. So we were talking before that there's no imprinting with a red tail on to no, at when, this stage in their life. No, because they were born may into june and within 40 to 60 days they're out on their own and their parents are pushing them out of the ground they have to be on their own so when we trap them they're very inquisitive and very easy to train and quickly learn um so yeah it's just it's the right time to do it you know they're older than that they get wiser to the world you would never want to take a red what they call a haggard or a true adult Mm -hmm. and try to work with them because they're very aggressive and very dominant because they've been on their own and they're just more confident and mm-hmm. they, they don't make a good bird and if you get a bird younger than that you take it out of the nest I call an is meaning it's not yet um got as adult feathers mm-hmm. they will imprint on you and then they become extremely aggressive to you and other people and that's not suitable for red tails there are species that we hunt with especially for example goshawks they do much better when you take it out of the nest as an is and imprint it but they're a different type of bird and different brains 
action. They think differently, so they can be imprinted, but red tails are not good as imprints. And then, and the only way to get these birds is through having a falconry license. Correct. Okay. Uh, they're not pets, and basically when we trap a bird out of the wild in the state of New York, the state of New York owns that bird. Mm-hmm. So we're allowed to use it as many years as we hunt with it, and as long as we continue hunting it, we're allowed to use it. But if we're no longer hunting with it, we are to release it back into the wild. And it knows how to hunt and how to um, fly before we took it, so it reverts very quickly back to the wild. And we were talking before, in you, if you capture that bird, and in December you're, you're like, I, I can't do this, you have to wait till the spring. You want to wait till the spring because that bird would have normally migrated, and now you've kept it here. And now it doesn't have a territory in mm-hmm. which to hunt. And, and if you release it, it has no place to hunt. It won't survive the winter. So what we, we look to do is carry it. We call it carryover. You carry, keep it till the spring. And when the weather breaks into March, beginning of April, you feed it up and you open the door and they fly away and they don't look back. And they survive the winter because you kept them. Okay. Like I said, 8 out of 10 won't survive naturally. So we joke as falconers, we're helping the population every time we trap a bird and keep <laughs> it through the winter. That's great. Uh, so let's let's go on a hunt now. Let's okay. take us through uh, uh, a hunt that I'm, I'm dying to go on. <laughs> We've been talking about this for two, two three years now, yeah. um, and we're going to make it happen this winter, I, I really hope. Uh, so now you have to be target-specific of your quarry? We, How does that work? We want to hunt rabbits and squirrels okay. with a red tail. That's mm-hmm. what their natural prey would be. It'd be on the high end of what they're hunting because they'd rather eat 10 little mice than a rabbit or squirrel because that's a lot to them for them to handle. But we're helping them. We're, they are like the gun and we're the helpers. They're the hunter and we're, we're beating the brush to try to help them. So what we're going to do in advance is we, every day we weigh the bird. And as we get closer to when we want to start hunting it, we start watching the weather. So you want to lower their weight, but you can't starve them. So you have to continue to feed them because their intestinal tract is very short. If you stop feeding them, they, their, their guts close down. It doesn't function correctly. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure they get food every day, but you don't want to feed them as much as you normally would to keep their weight up. So as you lower their weight, you need to watch the weather because if you have a night that drops down, say, below freezing and they've been normally eating a certain amount, they're going to lose more weight trying to stay, stay warm. warm. Mm-hmm. So if you have a bad night where it goes instead of say 20 degrees it goes to minus four you have to be very careful that you keep that bird healthy by feeding it enough to survive that Mm -hmm. temperature so oftentimes what i like to do is i'm going to hunt on the weekend i will feed throughout the week lowering it a little bit and then on friday i don't feed so that way it gives me a good place to be on saturday if i want to feed if i think he's still not low enough that gives me sunday to lower his weight a little bit more on Mm -hmm. saturday to get him ready for sunday and if he's too low i can beef him up a little bit on saturday and still hunt on sunday so it's a science you need to get the feel of your bird you get to know when they respond to you the quickest at what weight they need to be and you try to get that target weight every time even 10 or 15 grams can make a difference whether your bird comes back or doesn't come back doesn't come back so once we get that all set up now we say, okay, today we're going to go hunting. So the first thing you got to make sure the bird does is cast. Casting is when they spit a pellet up. Just like owls, they have a pellet that's in their mm-hmm. crop. It's not the same as an owl because owls has the fur and feathers in the bones. Hawks have a stronger stomach acid, so it's just the fur of the feathers. But they need to spit that pellet up because that makes their stomach feel empty, and that tells them they're hungry. Oh, okay. Otherwise, it feels like there's something in there, and they're not, they don't feel hungry. So they have to cast that pellet, and then you're ready to go. So now you've hopefully scoped out some good hunting places where there's rabbits and squirrels. Um, we tend to hunt um, hedgerows along fields because mm-hmm. the fields have a lot of prey in it, but the birds like to hang out in the trees. So um, 
And there's three main rules you got to follow if you're going to hunt with a bird. Don't hunt by a big body of water that you can't cross because the bird will definitely cross and you can't. Okay. Don't hunt by power lines because high tension lines especially because they'll go to the highest point to, to, to get a good view of everything and they'll get electrocuted. And don't hunt by the highway because they'll cross the highway and it's like Frogger. You won't make it across. You won't make it across. <laughs> also, the birds will swoop and they can get hit by a car. Okay. So, but those are like the cardinal rules. And so you find a good hunting spot and you basically let the bird go. You put on Hunting dresses, the difference between regular dresses and hunting, hunting dresses have a very tiny hole in them that you can hook to a, uh, a clip. The other ones have longer holes, and you don't want any holes that they could be wrapped up on a branch and get caught. Oh, okay. And they're usually shorter. And um, we put bells on them so we can hear where they are. Um, we can locate them that way because we don't want them going to the ground to eat something. And they eat a vole or something, and now they're not hungry, and you don't know that happened. You hear their feet moving if they're on the ground. Yep. And we also hunt with telemetry. We put a, a transmitter on their center tail feather. doesn't interfere with them flying. But if we lose the bird, we can um, pull out an antenna and track them. Okay. If you're a really rich falconer, you can put GPS on them now <laughs> and take your iPad out. And you can find them for miles and miles. The downside is just because you find them doesn't mean they're going to come back to you. (laughs) So now you're ready to hunt. Your bird's ready to go. And now it's your job as the hunter or helper to beat the brush and try to get a rabbit or squirrel going. Because the bird knows the game. He understands. He'll follow you up in the tree above Mm -hmm. you to see what you're doing. And his vision being seven times better will watch what's happening. And they'll see the movement way before we do and go after something. And then then the chase is on. So once that, that falcon comes down and, or that, that hawk comes down and, and gets a rabbit, now that, that, does it take off with that, No. Corey? Most birds of prey, like a good-sized female is going to weigh 1,500 grams or mm-hmm. less. Males go in under 800. A rabbit's like a pound and a half greater than that. So they physically can't, can't lift fly. it. So if they hit a rabbit or a squirrel, you want to go in for two reasons. One is to protect your bird so they don't especially from a squirrel because they're very tenacious and they bite and they'll hurt the bird. Um, And you don't want the animal that they're killing to to suffer because the way a bird of prey kills is they hit the head to keep the prey from moving and then the chest to suffocate it. And it may take them a while to suffocate a rabbit or a squirrel. Mm -hmm. So we come in and dispatch it for them um, so that the the animal doesn't suffer. That's part of our mean too is not to let the prey suffer either. And then depending on the bird, if it's a brand new bird that hasn't hunted much, we want it to feed up on what it just got. So I like to open up the belly for them because they'll start plucking and stuff and they don't get it. Open it up so they can eat something good and they understand that I do this, I get this at the end of it. Oh, okay. Um, If it's a bird that's been hunting a lot and knows the game, all you got to do is throw a tidbit, a little mouse or a piece of meat to the side. They know that's something good. They jump on it. We carry a pillowcase in our vest. I just cover up the the rabbit or the squirrel out of sight out of mind Mm -hmm. and you can pick them up and continue hunting because they haven't eaten anything great and they'll they'll hunt over and over again they'll they'll keep going but that first couple of times you want to reinforce it they have a crop that's above their stomach and it fills up with food and it can get as big as a softball so you let them fill up as much as they want you're done hunting for probably the rest of the week but that's the best way to get them to acclimate that this is going to be fun and this is my reward at the end that sounds that sounds great now you also have an educational program I have, you do. Yeah, you have I have some a, owls. I have owls, and they're on a different permit instead of a falconry permit. That's on an educational permit, and it allows me to take birds that have been injured and non-releasable and use them in programs to educate the general population about 
keeping our environment healthy and safety for these birds of prey. So I have to do so many programs a year to maintain the birds. And I can also incorporate my falconry birds in the educational programs so it can demonstrate both sides of not only animals that are non-releasable, but animals that we utilize to hunt um, in New York State. And then with that uh, education permit, um, who may, where do the, the birds that are injured, who makes the assessment that so they're not releasable? Back if into a the wild. bird is injured, usually there's usually two different ways: hit by a car, or they've been injured by um, somebody shooting them, or electrocuted, things like that. So what happens is someone finds the bird and brings it to a rehabilitator. A rehabilitator's job is to try to rehabilitate it to the point where it can go back in the wild. Whether it takes a couple days or even a whole year, depending on their injury, they will try to do that. That's the best scenario is to get the birds back into the wild. But if that can't happen, then the rehabilitator can't keep endless amount of animals. So Mm -hmm. they look for what they call an educational slot, which is what I do. And then um, there are places we can... um, request birds or we can see online what birds are available and then we send on our paperwork to the state and to the federal government they approve to have that on our permit and then we can acquire that bird and they transfer the bird from their license to our license Um, so in addition to your falconry bird so you can have three because you're a general i'm a general so you can have your three birds there yep and then you can have another eight birds for your educational yep and that's all on your hand in front of the Yep, in front of the general population. And I have to do programs that are always available to the general population. I mean, I can do a private one, but I have to allow people, who anybody, to come watch me. So I do a lot of, like, harvest festivals, winter festivals for the state. Um, I also do schools, scouting groups, um, uh, educational programs like I work with stride so I do programs through stride so anytime I can get a group of people together I can do a program and I have to admit I have to charge a fee because of the cost of traveling maintaining the birds I mean the state of the state and the government have put a lot of criteria what we have to do but they do not support us in any way financially they actually I'd pay a hundred dollars a year for my educational permit to the federal government every year yeah and going back to falconry with the cost of falconry uh, we were talking earlier that it's it's there's a substantial startup cost to getting involved with that in addition to the time. Definitely. You need to probably have about $2,000 in this day and age. It's gotten a little more expensive because it costs more. You need to build a muse or a chamber. It needs to be 8 by 8 by 8 feet tall. It has to have barred windows. It has to have a perch in it. Um, it has to have what's called a double door. So you walk into a door and shut that door before you walk into the chamber because your bird, if you had one door, you could open the door and it, the bird could actually fly away. So for the safety of the bird, you have to have a double door. You have to have what's called a weathering, which is another enclosure that's outside that's open to the weather because the bird needs to be in the rain. It needs to be in the sun. It needs to be like it's outside. Um, you need a giant hood, which is a box you travel with. You need jesses and equipment to maintain the bird. You need a glove. You need a hunting vest. So it's all these things that mm-hmm. you have to get initially. After that, it's your time and the cost of the food. Uh, we like to feed day-old chicks and mice. Um, day-old chicks have a lot of calcium, and the egg yolk is really good nutrition for them, but they don't have any vitamin D because they never see the light of day. Mm-hmm. So we alternate with mice, and so you have to have a source to buy the food also. And though it's not terribly expensive, it, it is a daily expense. Mm-hmm. You're never going to hunt enough to maintain your bird on what you catch hunting. Right. So you have to have another food source. But initially, once you get after that, it's it's very doable. It's that first you know five months that you're going to pay the price. Yeah, it, it really, uh, you can go on to NCON's website and pull up falconry 
and it, it gives you the manual, the test, and you can read. It's it's really interesting. Um, it's something that's been going on for for thousands, thousands of years. Of years. Yeah. India is where it started, and then the British at one point ruled, ruled the world, and they brought it back to Great Britain and the royal times, you know. And then it came over to America, and um, it's just becoming more popular now because it's a different way of being out in the wild and in an environment doing things that are, it's just very exciting. You know, people don't think about walking for you know three hours with a bird but it, it you don't the time flashes so vast that you don't even realize it and how do property owners respond when you ask that can it, i it, it depends it's like you know i have people that come up to me and go oh come to my house i have lots of squirrels but then you scope it out and they're in a neighborhood so you know you go to hunt in their yard and the squirrel goes three houses down and catches the squirrel and then the little lady comes out screaming that's my favorite squirrel and you just <laughs> killed them now you're in trouble so you really need to scope it out before you go and make sure that you're not going to be in a scenario like that mm -hmm. um we can hunt um, state lands without with permission we can hunt farm lands with permission so you kind of need to find an area that meets the criteria of what mm -hmm. type of bird you're hunting um, we rarely hunt in populated areas just because you can't people all have different opinions on what we're doing we're still hunting so it, it's a different way but some people just don't feel that that's appropriate no matter how you do it which right. is fine um, but we find a lot of people that if you take the time to introduce yourself and show them the birds and tell them what you're going to do in I hate to admit it but like nine out of ten times we don't win that the rabbit squirrel wins it, we don't it's not that successful it's not like we go out and we're killing squirrels right and left um, there's a joke about killing squirrels in the falconry um, environment it says that more squirrels die on the highways and byways of New York State in a single day than all the falconers kill in a whole season Is so that right? we're not decimating the population of no. squirrels by any means they, yeah that's the true fair chase yeah. right there yeah um, and, and they're fighting for their life too and, and you'll see them do things that you couldn't imagine they could do and you're amazed by it and, and it, and it puts a new um, look on to how struggle their life is a struggle too but how it's amazing how they get away and, and survive you know the um, I was in a deer stand last last uh, last fall and I looked down and there's two squirrels fighting and uh, all of a sudden a small bird of prey came down and one squirrel stood his ground like it came down to go after one and that squirrel ran up and kind of jumped at that bird of prey. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked to see a squirrel actually, but you said they're they're pretty they're tenacious. Tenacious. Yeah. I've seen where a bird will grab a squirrel and let it go in midair because the squirrel's biting his foot and try to grab it again before it hits the ground. Because when the squirrel hits the ground, they get away fast, mm -hmm. and and it's amazing how how fast they can run. But the birds will try to grab you know refoot them to try to grab it. Mm -hmm. um, I was popped one time we were hunting a squirrel and it was up the tree and my husband yells keep it up the tree so you beat the tree with your stick to try to keep it up the squirrel came right over my forehead and the bird was right behind it and the bird hit me in the forehead and <laughs> flipped me right over and put me in the ground and it was like I was blinking you know seeing stars because the bird hit me that hard so you can imagine a squirrel weighs two pounds and they hit him and I you know 130 pounds and flipped <laughs> over backwards so you know the birds have some great strength yeah. but the squirrels are, are you know crazy too and we have to protect our birds if they get bit we carry a, like a first aid kit in our pocket so mm -hmm. we can put um, triple in, in on them right away on any cuts that we see and if they have any injury we bring them right to a vet to make sure we can get them on antibiotics because we don't want them to get an infection they have very poor circulation to their feet and if you don't treat their feet well and they get an infection they're more than likely are not going to be able to hunt anymore because it'll damage their feet 
the last thing you were talking about um, the, the 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 birds of prey that hunt as a group. Yep. What what birds that? Those are Harris hawks. Now in this area. M- the best bird in, in like the Albany County area or upstate New York is a red tail because that's the most common one. They're the easiest to man, easiest to work with. But in the Midwest, they have equivocal to our red tail. It's called a Harris hawk. And they're actually a group of birds of prey that live as a family union. Most birds of prey, once they have their babies, they push the mother pushes the father and the babies out of the territory and demands the territory as the dominant bird. Harris hawks don't do that. They live as family groups. And so you have the mother and father on nest with babies. And then the juveniles from last year or even two years ago will be living around the area. And they'll send those juveniles down into the thick brush to go after prey. If they pop a bobwhite or a quail out and it goes flying up, the parents kill it. And then the whole family, everybody eats off of it. There's no fighting. There's no squabbling. They act as a family union. So if we go to a falconry meet and there's 150 falconers there and we have birds that won't work together, that means not everybody gets to fly or gets to fly when they want to. But you can take five or six Harris hawks out, put them out together to hunt and there's no fighting there's no bickering they know who's the faster birds who's the chasers and they will work as a unit to bring down that prey and we we joke because they know which falconers are are the ones that are really into brush beating and moving Mm -hmm. because they'll follow you the laggers behind they let them go they don't stay with them they stay with the front group and to work with a group of birds is totally different dynamics because they're working on vision so if the bird that's chasing if the squirrel goes around the back of the tree and they don't see it they stop they don't know where to go but a cutter, which is one of the slower birds, is coming from the side and sees it, will knock it off the tree, and the chase continues. So it just keeps rolling, whereas before you don't know where the squirrel is because you didn't get there. But these, the birds just keep it moving and moving and moving. So it's totally different dynamics. And if you go to the Midwest where they have jackrabbits that are five to seven pounds, you can put six or eight of these birds on them, and they'll actually bring the jackrabbit down. But you run the risk of losing your bird because jackrabbits are very strong. And they mm-hmm. can kick the bird and physically kill it. So there's a risk there for both the bird and the jackrabbit. Now, you did you talked before that you, you had lost a bird. Uh, last year, I think we were talking that you had a, a red tail that didn't come back. I have lost a bird. I mean, there's two types of falconers. Those have lost a bird and those have yet to lose, lose a bird. bird. Um, I lost one. And I really didn't do anything wrong. The bird was a good way. And we were hunting in this big, deep ravine. And a wild bird or wild bird tail came after it. So they kind of both flew up out of the ravine. And when they got out of it, it was very windy and they got caught up in the wind. And they basically got blown out of sight. I spent that afternoon and then the next morning I found 23 red tails in my travels looking for, <laughs> but they, none of them were her. So you feel bad. I mean, it, it, you as a person feel bad, but the bird knew how to hunt and how to fly before that. It's going to survive in the wild. And basically the jesses are made out of kangaroo leather that eventually gets frayed and mm-hmm. they can rip them off. So they're going to rip the anklets and the jesses off in a few weeks and they'll be back to the wild. So, and you know, it makes you want to cry. You lost your bird, <laughs> but the bird in itself is at no great loss. It's going right. to survive and, and do okay. But it, it doesn't come back to you because it likes you and, and you can lose a bird easier than you think. So, Anything that you want to talk about that add before we wrap this up? Um, if you are interested in falconry, one of the best things you can do is go on the webpage to DEC and special licenses and look under falconry. And there's a list there of the falconers in New York State by counties and territories. Find one, call them, tell them that you're interested. Most falconers are very willing to spend their time and their knowledge with you and see if you can hook up to go hunting and just see what it's like. Um, some people are very into it. And they get all into it 
completely. And then when they start get to the point where there's actually hunting and things are dying, they realize that is hard to, to take. That it mm-hmm. wasn't the same as they thought. And other people realize how much work and determination it's going to take and say, I'm not ready at this point in my life, mm-hmm. but I will be later and keeps in touch. And some people jump in with two feet and they're all about it. So that's the best way to find out is to expose yourself to a little bit more and see what's involved in in how it's done and and i can guarantee you most falconers are very willing to help you out and you do the educational program so we'll put your email in the description here that'd be great so if you want to get a hold of richelle and uh thank you for coming on uh this has been great I, i hope you guys enjoyed this podcast uh you can get this on soundcloud itunes stitcher and now google play so thanks for listening Thank you, Rochelle. You're welcome. And please don't forget to subscribe. Depending on what platform you're at, just hit the subscribe button, uh, like us, and follow us. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Also, we're on SoundCloud and uh, iTunes. And please give us a review. Let us know how we're doing. And that rightmost star on iTunes is very important. If you click that, that helps us out. If you have a suggestion Please reach out via email at 518woodsandwater at gmail.com. Or you can also reach us through social media. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Working and talking with Rochelle was awesome. And again, her contact information is in the description below. So if you need to look her up for a presentation, uh, she does a tremendous presentation. She's very passionate about her birds. Um, and she has some beautiful, beautiful birds. So reach out to her as well. Have a great fall, and we'll see you next week.